When you enter into B2B spaces, you could have some white whales that, that definitely skew the, the feedback, right? And so one of the, the important things for us is understanding, you know, keeping things as a data point of one and saying, okay, that was one data point. We can look at it. We can weight that data point, but at the end of the day, it's still a data point of one. You're listening to GTM Disrupted with Mike Smart of Egress Solutions. Learn how product management and product marketing thought leaders are rethinking their business strategies to thrive in a world of radical change. Hi, my name is Mike Smart and welcome to Go To Market Disrupted. Today I have Brian Utes with me. Brian is a Senior Director of Global Product Management at Sophion, which by the way is an enterprise software company that provides innovation and product management solutions that help their customers introduce products faster. We're here today to talk about how product managers can improve the go-to-market success for their products. Brian is a seasoned product professional, and he has worked in business verticals from retail to finance. Brian now leads Sofion's product teams, or helps lead Sofion's product teams. Before Sofion, Brian worked and served in product management roles at PNC Bank and Dick Sporting Goods. Because of this wide range of experience and his focus on innovation, Brian offers a really fresh perspective on B2B enterprise software. I'm really pleased to have Brian with me today. Thank you for joining us, Brian, and agreeing to, to chat with us. Most of your career has been around product management, but you've moved a lot with comfort and ease between B2C, B2B, across industries. Can you share with the listeners some of the perspective you've gained from being willing and, and bold enough to make those kind of changes in your career? Absolutely. Um, so first of all, thanks for, for having me, Mike. It's always a, a pleasure to talk with you. As far as my career goes, I, I kind of think of that as the one product that I manage my entire life, right? So my, my career is my quintessential product and I'm always looking for ways to improve it. I've been fortunate enough to be able to have different roles in different verticals. So I've worked in finance, I've worked in retail, I've worked in healthcare, B2B SaaS. I've also worked with companies that are very small from, you know, 100 150 people to multinational corporations like Citibank. And so that experience has given me the opportunity to see sort of what works, what doesn't work when it comes to product management in a lot of different areas, as well as what do different organizations struggle with along that growth curve, right? So going from 150 people to sit something like Citibank with hundreds of thousands of employees, that's been a, a fun experience in my career to see the differences and similarities across all of those different organizations. What are some of the things, cores, and I like the fact that you take ownership and accountability for a career and you're treating it like a product. That's an amazing concept. Um, something I'd like to unpack with you a little, a little later if we have time. But what are some of the core things that you've been able to pull across all that experience that remains constant for you? So talk, share a little bit of that with us. Yeah, it's really interesting because no matter where I go and no matter what role I have in product, it really comes down to identifying what problem you're solving, why that's a problem you should even solve to begin with, and who you're solving it for, 
right? And as long as you, you have those kind of three concepts in your mind, you're able to take that same, same concept and apply it a lot of different ways, right? So it's kind of like riding a bike, eventually it comes down to hands on the wheels or hands on the, the handlebars, feet on the pedals and balance, right? And, and so those three things of understanding your, your product are kind of like those three things with riding a bike. Um, so as long as I, I've been able to put myself in, in my customer's shoes and be able to empathize with them on, on the products that they're experiencing, I've been able to, to find success going from different industries into different problem spaces. So having made the shift, being able to do that, and I'm spe specifically referring to B to C, more B to B now, most of the audience that listens to this are in the B to B space. What mm -hmm. insights would you share with people on that side of this, this career path that they should look at the other side and bring things with them or look to gain things from that? I think one of the things we, ch we struggle with inside of a B2B uh, product space is this idea of organizational change management, right? So we target our buyer. We, we look at the, the needs of the economic buyer. We make sure that we address those in marketing. We make sure that we address those from a, a sales enablement perspective. We sometimes struggle with adoption and, and engagement of the actual end user. Right? So we know we have a great product, but once you hand that thing to a third party and they have to go give it to the end user, now you're dealing with all of the organizational change management pieces. Right? One of the things that, that's been really nice about my B2C background is a lot of my persona development was specific to my end user. Right? A lot of my feedback that I was getting was straight from the end user. And that's always one of the challenges when we have a B2B space is we need to find a way to get to that end user and enable and empower our, our economic buyer, our champion, uh, whatever your organization calls it, in order to make that product successful, both from a product standpoint, but also for the, the buyer to say, hey, look, we're driving the change we said we would drive, right? And so having that dual uh, mindset of, of different personas across an organization comes in really, really handy when we start talking about this space. Now, I want to circle back on something you said, because you said handing my product, if I'm a product manager, to a third party. Who are you referring to? Who in your mind are the third parties that we have to engage with? One of the, the third parties that we deal with a lot at Sofion is we tend to uh, have a procurement department or an IT department that's managing all of the enterprise software contracts, right? And so they are a, a buyer or they are a champion or an admin. They're somewhere in that value chain, but they may or may not be using the product every single day. That, that's what I mean by that third party is they're the ones that administer the product and we need to make sure that they're as knowledgeable about it as someone inside of our organization would be. Classical referring to buyer persona, but there is critical to the way that product that you offer presents itself from their point of view, point of pain, job to be done as the people actually using the product. Exactly. They're, they're really your, your first line of support, right? So mm -hmm. if you have 
5,000 people in a, in a company using your product, you don't have those 5,000 users calling your support line. Typically, they're going to that person that's the champion or the admin on your tool. And if that person isn't knowledgeable or, or isn't uh, really championing your, your product, then you're fighting an uphill battle the entire time that you're in that space. When you put that in perspective, what it sounds like, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, maybe I am leading the witness a little bit here, but I apologize for that. You're talking about the go-to-market part of the job, right? That That's really what this comes down to. And so if you look at your perspective, broad perspective, and then more recent perspective from Sofian's point of view, how does that has that evolved? How has that changed for you from a product manager perspective in the last recent time? Two years, three years, yeah. whatever is appropriate. Yeah. So I think um, you're always looking at that life cycle of how does how do you promote awareness? How do you promote discoverability of a product or a new feature or a new release? And then how do you get the user through that adoption curve? Right? How do you go from discoverability to a decision to adopt and then eventually fall in love with the product? The B2B space definitely has added complexity to that, depending on is your product an on-prem solution? Is it completely SaaS hosted? Uh, enterprise contracts tend to have a lot of nuance to them and there's a lot of exceptions. So what you can do for some customers, you may not be able to do for others. And so that has definitely evolved in my my thinking as opposed to when you're doing something like uh, managing a, a mobile app like I did at Dick's Sporting Goods and you push, hey, we're doing this release, we're doing an update on the app store and every single user gets that update, right? There's not a, a contractual SLA that says, well, you know, we only take this many upgrades per year. Uh, so it definitely adds a lot of complexity to that go-to-market perspective, especially for existing customers. And what do you see as the common thing? If you zoom up to, a, to some altitude above it, what, what are the principles similar to your analogy about the bicycle riding? What are the principles on that side of the equation, the adoption side that you think are applicable in both worlds? Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing is the communication piece, right? So when we talk about go to market and getting our organization ready for different things like a a quarterly software release or whatever it may be, making sure that everyone understands the value that we're putting into the product and how it's going to make people's lives better, right? So if we just say, hey, new version's out, adoption's gonna be awful, right? But if we're able to talk about the specific value that we're adding in the product and we're able to communicate that effectively, for the champion to go back to their users and talk about, hey, we're, we're doing this upgrade. This is what you're going to be able to do. That allows us a, a much higher level of success than uh, what you would typically see if, if we were just posting something like we did with uh, mobile app updates, right? So people get updates and you know, you have the what's new uh, on the app store, but nobody reads that, right? So you have to find ways in the product to say, okay, how do I make people aware of, of the value that we've added? How do I make people aware of new features that we've put in, whatever it may be, uh, and driving that discoverability piece all the way 
through to the end user is, is definitely something that uh, is a common thread, whether you're doing B2B or B2C product management. You and I met through a common contact, right? Um, you were doing your product management job and soliciting feedback about a new capability you have. And I guess the question, the thing I think about is that that soliciting feedback is a critical part of the PM role. Um, when you look at this dynamic B2C, B2B world in terms of soliciting feedback, are those things that you do on the B2C side as well? And how do you see them different or similar to what you would do as, a, as an enterprise software product manager? Yeah, uh, I, I think it's definitely a common theme and you do it regardless of, of what vertical you're in, whether you're in a B2B space, whether you're in a B2C space, there are some nuances between the two, right? When you're in a B2C space, everybody's getting the same price, right? So a user is a user is a user is a user. Right. When you enter into B2B spaces, you could have some white whales that, that definitely skew the, the feedback. Right. And so one of the, the important things for us is understanding, you know, keeping things as a data point of one and saying, OK, that was one data point. We can look at it. We can wait that data point. But at the end of the day, it's still a data point of one. And one of the important things that we've done at Sophion is really talked about the concept of the, the mathematician in World War II that was looking at planes returning from, from dogfights. And all of the, the people would look at the planes with the holes and say, okay, we need more armor here, we need more armor here. And finally, one mathematician said, okay, well, the, what we've learned from this is those planes actually landed with holes where they are, right? We need to put more armor on the places that we don't see holes. And so when we talk about the data point of one, we say, okay, great, we're getting this feedback from customers, but that's a plane that's landed, right? We also need to be out there talking to prospects and talking about the planes that didn't land. So that, you know, doing loss reports, all of those types of things are just as critical to make sure we have more planes landing at our airport, not just keeping the ones coming back, right? That's a fabulous analogy. I love it. A really relevant kind of idea of some practices that belong in the role. Egress Solutions is a high-touch product growth and market success consultancy. Since 2009, Egress Solutions has had successful engagements with the top technology organizations, delivering insights into buyer preferences, product market fit, product management, and go-to market excellence. Egress Solutions accelerates top-line growth and market success for our clients. Go to www.egresssolutions.net to learn more. The last few years, three, four years, five years, we've seen the emergence of a new role, product marketing, right? Talk a little bit about how, and I'm making an assumption you have that role present at Sophion. Most enterprise software companies do. And since you've been there for a little while, talk about the emergence of that role and how this go-to-market effort, some of the things you've described and even some of the things that may exist in that role kind of share out or balance out in terms of defining the whole success of a product? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yes, we do have a, a product marketing group here at Sofion, and they are some of my favorite people in the organization. Um, I think what you've seen with that evolution of that role is almost a, a recognition that the previous role was just too big, right? Uh, having someone constantly working with engineering, also talking to customers, also working with UX, and doing everything for sales enablement and, and messaging and all of those types of things. Some people can do it, right? But but that's a that's a heavy burden. And I think what we've it's seen- It's a quick way to burn out as well. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And so I think what we've seen is this recognition that, hey, we may want someone whose entire job is not to be married to the feedback and married to this process of creating, but really taking that narrative and making sure it, it actually resonates, right? And that's one of the things I love about my product marketing team is the vision's super clear in my head, right? Mm -hmm. up, up here, it's, it's perfect. Everything looks fantastic. I know exactly how I'd explain it. But if I explain it to them and they, you know, scratch their head and go, eh, could you say that again? My marketing wasn't going to hit the mark, right? It wasn't going to resonate with, with our users or with our buyers. And so they're really quintessential to, to my success and to our organization's success because they act as that translator to make sure that I'm not just out here telling a story that is only resonating for me. Right. And, and that's such a valuable piece for me. And I, I absolutely love that organizations have added that role uh, to really add a bit of consistency or resiliency or grit uh, to, to making sure that those product messages actually resonate and, and can be explained, not just from the product manager. Brian, you're celebrating your product marketing team. If you want to give a shout out to some individuals, go for it, man. Yeah. If, they, they, if yeah. they're listening to this, they're probably going <laughs> to feel good about it. <laughs> I was going to say, so, uh, you know, Al Himmler, our, our VP of product marketing, Annette Lombardo, we just had uh, a new person join the organization, Tom Malfetto. So, you know, that, that triad is absolutely fantastic. We did an acquisition mid last year and, mm -hmm. and acquired a great person in Aaron Slater uh, over in Bristol in the UK. So, yeah, that, that group is just absolutely fantastic for us. So thank you guys, if you're listening. For people that may not be having the success you're having with this shared responsibility or may want to know what does good look like, share with us, and I don't mean really granular detail, but some of, break down some of the things that you say, these are touch points or engagement points where we absolutely connect and, and make sure that the vision in your head or the PM's head is easily, I won't say easily, this translation is straightforward and there's an opportunity obviously to refine as you go forward. Talk a little bit about some of the things that you do. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think we've taken some best practices from, from other organizations and from other disciplines. One of the things that we do just from an organization standpoint of making sure that everyone understands the product vision, whether it's someone in sales or someone in finance, we have quarterly roadshows. So we, we go through a presentation of, Hey, what is the product vision? What has changed over the last three months? What's coming up? What trends are we seeing? What feedback are we getting? All of those types of things come into that roadshow. And we have a... a Just to clarify, the roadshow yeah. is an internal roadshow? 
Correct. So it okay. is internal. All right. Uh, we set up about an hour with about eight different groups. So we have sales in the U.S. We have sales mm -hmm. in EMEA. They each get their own hour. We have consulting in the U.S., consulting or professional services in, in EMEA. They each get their own hour. So we kind of go through and just make sure everyone gets that you know, personalized opportunity to ask questions, provide feedback, make sure that they're clear on it. And product marketing is, is absolutely involved through that process. And then we also do some vision casting with our engineering teams on a more granular level for each particular area or each particular product. And we make sure that product marketing is involved in that. It, it, it's sort of every, the way I think about it is everywhere that we would have UX or marketing or, or whoever it may be that's helping translate these plans and these requirements into whether it's mock-ups or whether it's messaging, whatever it may be, we're pulling in that product marketing group so that they're involved throughout that entire process as well. So it's not, hey, I'm coming to you nine months after a 10-month cycle saying, hey, this is what we're putting out to the, pro to the product in four day or four weeks. Can you put together a marketing plan for me and, and get sales enablement done and get all of these other things that that we know are uh, essential to making sure that this product's successful in the market? They're involved through that that entire process there. So you described something that's fairly straightforward and even straightforward to execute on, but it's not common practice. So I appreciate you getting into the details on that. I was going to ask you about alignment practices, but that's what you just described. And it's also kind of cycles back when you mentioned earlier the third party reference, would you put these stakeholders in that same category as that buyer third party almost? They sound like they're very similar in terms of the way you interact with them and treat them. Yeah, I, I think of them, I grew up in a pretty large family. I had uh, two older brothers, a little sister, a couple cousins that lived in my house. So I, I almost think of them as, as siblings, right? They're part okay. of the family. <laughs> and, and so, you know, they're going out there and, and acting as our wingman and being able to, you know, evangelize for us as well. And and their name's on the line, right? Just Just like ours is. So there's a pride that comes with that. There's a family mentality that comes with that. And so, you know, I, I would think of them much closer than a third party, just gotcha. because of the right relationship that we've tried to, to create and, and the culture we're trying to build. You hit on something that's really key in this. And I'll go back to your wingman analogy, kind of thinking about whether you're playing hockey or you're playing soccer. If you're in the middle of the field, whatever your role is there, your goal is to make sure your wingman doesn't get blindsided, right? So that's that's one. And then the other thing you're describing is a trust relationship, which I think is absolutely crucial. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's funny you bring up uh, team sports. I, I actually coach uh, youth soccer, and it's fun to see them go from U6, where everybody's just chasing the ball around, and it's a cluster around a cloud of dust. <laughs> right. Uh, and and now I'm I'm coaching at you know the U10 U12 levels where they're they're starting to understand shape of formations and and the one thing I always tell my teams is I want you to understand the formation but know that this game is also jazz right it, it's not a symphony I'm not telling you you've got these notes to play at this time and that's the only thing you can do if something feels right go for it right and and I think product teams that are really successful have that same mentality of 
hey, I, I know my role, but this, you know, I see a need, right? And, and they step into that need as they see it. And they have that trust that you talked about that other people are going to have their back if they need to, to have somebody cover for them. That's a good, good analogy you shared. I want to spin on something on that and just kind of take it to another level. When you think about your keen eye on innovation, when you look out across this area, what are some of the things you see happening in the space that has your interest, has your, your, has your antenna up? Yeah, so I, I think one of the things that that we're seeing, and we've we've just created our own entire series around this, is this concept of, of innovation ops, right? And we've seen product ops come out, we've seen DevOps that eventually became DevSecOps, and what we're seeing is this trend that you can't do innovation in a silo or in a vacuum, right? It's not hey, these nine people that are super smart and white lab coats are out there thinking of the next great thing. Uh, and even if they are, they can't bring that to market by themselves, right? They, they need to come in as part of the organization and make sure that everybody through the organization knows what's happening, why we're doing it. And so I think that's one of the biggest trends we're seeing is this need to break down those silos in a way that's productive, Right. Mm -hmm. The the idea of, you know, different organizations having different goals that may not be aligned causes a lot of that friction. And if we're not having those conversations and we're not talking about what are the problems we're trying to solve as an organization, really connecting our work back to the vision, then we have these breakdowns in communication where you, you typically have uh, maybe two forces that are somewhat opposed to each other saying, well, this is what matters for my annual review, it doesn't matter to your annual review. That's one of the biggest ones uh, that we're seeing. We also see the, the, the trends that I'm sure a lot of your listeners are, are familiar with, right? The, the, the need for sustainability. One of the things that got me so passionate about joining Sophion was, was that need for sustainability, right? We help our, our clients go through this innovation process. I, I love what we're doing here. Uh, and I said, you know, we've got some great, great customers, right? So some really, really recognizable brands. People can go to our, our website. I don't know exactly which brands I'm allowed to talk about, which ones I'm not. So go to our website if you want to see. But they employ millions of people, right? And those companies are so dependent on innovation as a way to compete and stay in their position as, as uh, leaders in their industries that the work that we do to help them through that process doesn't just matter for the people that we're helping. It matters for the millions of employees that are reliant on that company staying competitive. And so if, if we can be part of helping organizations solve those problems, you know, I, I don't need to be the main, main character in that movie, right? I'm happy to be an extra just walking through the back of that movie saying, hey, you know, that, that was me. That was me. We no, it's a that. brilliant, you're describing a brilliant production. It's, it's, those are the things that I think when we think about technology that we want to see companies engage in. You hit on best practices and in innovation. I'm assuming that your innovation ops program has evolved to a set of best practices. And then a great sense, it sounds like a great sense of care for your customer's environment and your customer's customer's environment. So that's that's excellent. 
So let's talk about AI and ML in your space. What do you see going on there? Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And, and it's been talked about for a long time. I think we're, we're kind of on the cusp of realizing a lot of the things that have been promised for a while, right? So we've, we've heard hyper-personalization. We've heard really targeting one-to-one from a product solution to a, to a customer perspective. And, and I think you're starting to see that be crafted through this use of AI. One of the things that I think we're going to see even a greater adoption of is how do I use the data that I have to get insights about what I could be doing better, right? And as AI starts to to become more commonplace, a lot of it's going to be around benchmarking and understanding, all right, where am I just constantly uh, overly optimistic or maybe pessimistic and saying, hey, yeah, this will only take three weeks, right? And we know... From past data, that's that's just not true, right? And I think the proliferation of AI into everyday type of applications is going to make that more and more apparent to every single user. The other natural evolution that I see in, in a lot of our tools is the software space and the interaction model will change drastically. In my previous role in healthcare, we talked about hey, what's the power of, of digital in the future for healthcare? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we, we gave this narrative of uh, a person who had a mole on their neck and their spouse said, hey, you should, you should really get that checked out, right? And so on his way out the door, he just told, told his home assistant to schedule a, a dermatologist appointment for him. All of that's taking place in the background. You know, it's finding the right doctor, it's finding the right network making the appointment, sending the, the follow-up email and saying, okay, your, your appointment's booked for this customer or for this doctor at this time, at this location, right? Things that today are just super, super manual and take a mm-hmm. lot of, even in the best of experiences, take a lot of interaction with software or with different tools. I think a lot of that's going to start to get automated, right? We, we always talk about digital being the referee at a sporting event, you know, it, re- nobody goes to see the referee, right? right? But the referee can ruin an experience if it's not a good referee. And so I think AI will allow those experiences to really move into the background even more and, and really allow people to live their lives. If, if, if we set up the right models, right. <laughs> that's, that's the catch with AI. Right. Nowhere did I hear you say that you feel like your job is in jeopardy as a product manager. <laughs> I hope not. I, I mean, want to put maybe... that to bed. I mean, that, that noise has been <laughs> going on long enough. By the time this airs, that should not be an issue, hopefully. But it, I'm sure some right. people still wonder about that. But right. more more seriously, how do you think it enhances the product management role? Yeah, so I think that's one of the things that we've seen about technology, whether whether it's been AI or whether it's been the PC or e- even going back to the printing press, right? So every advancement in technology has that threat. It's like, oh, we're, we're getting rid of all of these jobs, right? Well, the advancement of the, the printing press just allowed for greater education for everybody. And we, we still have people that have to write and still have to to create those things. What I think it allows us to do is spend more time in, in the areas that we 
we can do that AI can't, right? And so that's that's where technology is always finding uh, ways to do part of people's jobs, right? And, and there's always some part of it that the technology can't quite do yet. And personally, if we get AI that can write user stories for me because I tell it my intent and I tell it the problems, great. Like if I never have to write Gherkin format again in my life, <laughs> I will I will applaud whatever AI can come in and do that, right? I, I would rather spend my time thinking about the problem, crafting the problem, talking with customers, providing, getting feedback, talking about pricing, talking about all of these other things rather than pounding on a keyboard to, to write a user story. So I think, I think that's what AI is really going to enable not only product management, but a lot of different areas is to focus on the things that, that really you enjoy about the role. Right. And so if this helps people not burn out, as you mentioned earlier, let's do it. Yes. Who do you look to for insight or inspiration? Inside of the industry, outside industry, it doesn't matter. Just share that with us, please. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give some more shameless plugs here. I, I joined Sophion and I have the opportunity to work with some great product minds, right? Uh, my CPO, Mike Bauer, is a, a lifelong entrepreneur. He's had multiple uh, businesses that he started, that he's exited profitably, uh, Harvard business grad, just really, really bright individual. So I'm, I'm lucky enough to work with him every single day. Our CEO is, is Greg Katikia, uh, and another brilliant lifelong entrepreneur, lifelong product person, uh, actually wrote the CMU master's program on product management. Uh, so, you know, two really great people that I get to interface with on a, a daily basis to, to learn and, and grow with. Um, so, you know, now that I'm, I'm done sucking up for my next annual review, <laughs> out, outside of my organization, there's some great ones, right? I, I think everybody knows the, the Rich Miranovs, the uh, Dan Olsons of the world, Marty Kagan, obviously, writing what's commonly the, the Bible of product management with Inspired. So there's some great voices out there. I, I think the really nice thing that we're starting to see is this emergence of more diverse voices. Right. I think there's a lot of young voices that are coming up that are allowing us to get a different perspective on product management and, and business in general. Um, and so there, there's a long list of, of people uh, in, in that regard as well. Um, from Romley John at uh, PLG, uh, product led growth uh, and, and writing the book on uh, product led onboarding. I think that list goes on and on and on, right? So I think right. that's really the the fun part of of what we're starting to see with different voices coming into that space. Those are some great names, and I'll step to your defense. I don't know Mike, but I've heard and seen some of his work. I do know Greg. I met him as he was putting that program together at CMU, and you're not you're not giving accolades that aren't deserved. So I'll give you that. And the names that you mentioned, I think permeate the space. So I appreciate you sharing that. It's not often we get people to give real-time sort of broad views on that. And you had a, a wealth of names. Brian, I'm not going to offer your 
access up, but if people wanted to get to Sophion, especially about some of these best practices and things like that, how, how would you recommend people learn more about Sophion, the space that you work in, just so they can educate themselves on some of the, the unique things that are going on there? Absolutely. Yeah, feel free to follow us on LinkedIn. So Sophion is S-O-P-H-E-O-N. So we're out there on LinkedIn. Feel free to check out sophion.com. We've got YouTube channels. So we're trying to permeate as many channels as we can. We have a bunch of content out there on best practices. We have our own podcast led by our chief evangelist, Paul Heller. Feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn, right? I'm, I'm out there as well. Connect with me. Feel free to, to send me a message and, and tell me what you think and what you disagreed with today. Uh, you know, I'm always happy to get that feedback as well. I love the dialogues. Brian, I really appreciate you stopping by, spending some time with us. It's been informative. It's been fun. And wish you all the best and everything going forward. And to our listeners out there, we really appreciate your downloads, your reviews and comments. Thank you for joining us. This has been Go to Market Disrupted. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Egress Solutions, head on over to www.egresssolutions.net. 